you want to get out your Bibles and turn to the book of Matthew, uh, first chapter. We're going to be beginning a series on the book of Matthew this morning, so I'm glad that you're here. I hope that uh, this will get you excited about Matthew. Uh, we're going to be looking at the genealogy this morning, and typically that would not be exciting, but I think it's very exciting. Uh, so I, I think you'll find that as well as we get through this. Uh, but this is going to begin a series of lessons where we're just going to work our way through this gospel and understand what, what, what it's all about and why Matthew is writing this gospel. One thing that um, we're doing on Sunday nights is a series called 66 Gospels, where we look at each book of the Bible and we see how the gospel is shown to us in that book. Really, there's only one gospel, right? There's only one gospel. Um, it's just each book reveals the good news about what God is doing for mankind in a different way. And whenever we get to the New Testament, we have four accounts that we call Gospels. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these four we call the Gospels because they reveal to us the life of Jesus. And, and they all are written from different perspectives and by different people uh, so that as we read them, we can understand the good news, the, the gospel that, that's been revealed to us about who God is and what God has done for his people. These books are where we find revealed uh, a better understanding of God than we've ever had in the history of mankind. Uh, and Matthew is the first of those. If we were to summarize the other gospels, we would see that there's, there's value in each of them. They're all different. Sometimes they tell the same story in two totally different ways, but and it's kind of hard to harmonize, but we realize they're different authors writing for a different purpose. you got Mark, who is John Mark, who studied with Peter, and he is writing to the Gentiles, it seems, and one of the main themes in that book is that he wants the people to have a faith that's not afraid of the things that are going on throughout their time. And, and so that's the way he writes the story, that he reveals to us how people failed over and over again because they were afraid and they needed to have a stronger faith. Luke is a doctor uh, and he, he studied under Paul and he worked with Paul and he wrote this account of Jesus' life, he says, to give an orderly account of the things that Jesus did in his life and he's writing the book to a man named Theophilus so that Theophilus can understand what happened in the life of Jesus. And he even writes a sequel to his book, and that's the book of Acts. Uh, that's also written to Theophilus to, to tell about all the things Jesus continued to do through his apostles. John writes his gospel, and it's totally different than the rest. John is an apostle of the Lord, and he, he tells us what his book is about. At the very end, he says that if, if man were to write down all the things that Jesus said and did in this life, there wouldn't be enough parchment to contain all the things that Jesus did. But he says in chapter 20, verse 31, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John chose certain events in the life of Jesus that those who read may believe, and by believing they might have life in the name of Jesus and, and in his uh, coming to earth. So all of these men are writing with different purposes and different backgrounds that, that enable them to write, and they're, they're trying to accomplish something in their writings. Well, what about Matthew? What is this book about? If we were to take a big summary kind of view of this whole book, why is Matthew writing a gospel? There's other gospels. Why does he need to write one as well? 
what we're going to see, especially at the beginning of this book, is that the Gospel of Matthew is the account of Jesus' life explained so that the Jewish audience can understand that Jesus is the, the one who all of Scripture has been pointing to. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the one that they're waiting for. Matthew is a, is a Jewish gospel written by a Jew for the Jews to understand. And we might think about that and say, well, why do we need to know that then? We're not Jews. Well, there's some really important information given here that I think we all as Christians need to understand to help us understand how the Old Testament was created and what the purpose behind the Old Testament is. In the first four chapters specifically, Matthew is going to use the Old Testament heavily to accomplish this purpose, to, to reveal to us the value of the Old Testament and understanding the Jesus that is revealed to us in the first century. And then he's going to talk about how you follow the king that is now revealed in, from the Old Testament by walking on this earth and living among us and showing us how to live. And he's going to describe all that to us so that we can submit to this king and follow him. And that's essentially what the book of Matthew is all about. So we're going to, this morning, just look at the beginning of this and start to understand how Matthew reveals that the king is now here. And this is a big deal uh, for those who were Jews. Imagine yourself a Jew in the first century, uh, and you're, you're, you're trying to figure things out. There's this guy, Jesus, that's come up, and, and he seemed to have been the Messiah. He was doing all these great things, but I don't really know exactly uh, what, who he is or what he was about, really. It's not clearly explained. Matthew's going to explain it to you. And if you're a Jewish Christian, Matthew's going to touch on some deep things in the Old Testament that are really going to help strengthen your faith uh, as a Jew. And as Christians today... These things ought to strengthen our faith as well as we understand the God that we serve who, is, who has revealed to us all of the Old Testament in order to show us Jesus in the New Testament. So we start off with the genealogy. Uh, bear with me. Let's read through the first 17 verses of Matthew chapter 1. This is the beginning of the New Testament. He says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, Nation the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah the father of Jotham. Jotham the father of Ahaz. Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azar, and Azar, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim. And Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, 
And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. You still with me? <laughs> so maybe uh, as we were going through all of these names, uh, you were just thinking about, wow, is, is he pronouncing those right? I've never pronounced those that way. Maybe that's what you were thinking. Um, you know, I tend to think that, like, oh, is that how I'm supposed to pronounce that? You know, I may have messed that up. That's okay. Um, but typically genealogies are the thing that we skip, right? I mean, we don't, we don't like to read these parts of Scripture because there's nothing here. There's nothing for us to glean off of genealogies. Why would we ever study a genealogy? Uh, and so what, what, is, what is God doing? What is Matthew doing giving us a genealogy in the New Testament? That was Old Testament stuff. We don't need genealogies in the New Testament. Well, Matthew thinks that the genealogy is important. Otherwise, he wouldn't have added it in here. Mark didn't have a genealogy. John didn't have a genealogy. Luke did. But Matthew does. And Matthew thinks it's important. And notice in verse 17, he says, So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, and David to, the deport, to deportation 14, and deportation to Christ 14. He's got some purpose in mind in these stages of time. And he's trying to reveal something to us about what God has been doing by bringing up these different periods. Well, what is it that he's doing with these periods? Why is he, why is he revealing that Jesus has come through these people? Why didn't he go all the way back to Adam? Could have done that. Genesis makes it very clear, the genealogy trail. Luke does that. But instead he starts with Abraham, and he works his way through to David, and then he works his way through the deportation, and then he finally works his way through to Christ. Well, what are these stopping point, points all about? One thing that we're going to see this morning and understand is why he did this, because these are major points of promises that God makes to his people. And what, what, what Matthew is trying to come across to us and, and reveal to us is that Jesus is the one who fulfills these promises that are made in these different time periods. And, and that's going to be the main thing that we focus on this morning, is understanding those promises that were made and how Jesus is the fulfillment of them, at least to some extent. I mean, you, we could be here for hours looking at all that. And then we're going to talk about some of the details that are in this genealogy that really matter to each of us individually. Uh, I mean, these, these theological kind of things can sometimes seem uh, up, up in the air like, oh, wow, that's really cool and everything, but what does that mean to me? We're going to kind of look a little bit deeper and understand how it means something even to each of us individually. It's a big deal for us in our, in our faith overall to understand these things. This is, these are foundational concepts for every Christian to understand that, that Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament promises that were made. But we also need something we can take with us when we leave this place. And so Matthew gives us that as well in this genealogy. Notice the structure as you read through this genealogy is <coughs> the reverse, <coughs> sorry, the reverse of verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So he starts with Jesus, and then he says, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then, so that's A, B, C. And then he goes, Abraham in the verse 2, David, and he kind of goes chronologically. Okay? Um, and he reveals to us these different people. So, 
Why is he doing that, and what is the point? Why is verse 1 here written like it is? Well, he's pointing out specifically to these people because these people are important. There are promises that were made to each of these, to David and to Abraham. And there's another promise that's revealed to us in verse 1, and we'll get to that. But let's look at these and let's think about this a little bit. What does this mean to be the son of Abraham? If you're a Jew in the first century, how important is it that there is a son of Abraham that has come and that it is Jesus? Well, Abraham was made promises by God in the Old Testament. We, we remember those, most of us who studied the Old Testament very much. Back in Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 15 and chapter 17, you remember God comes to Abram and, and he has a wife, Sarah. He's 75 years old. She's 65. They have no children. And he says, go to the land that I will show you, out of Ur and into the land of Canaan. And, and he promises him there that he will give him a son, and through his son there will be a great nation. He makes the nation promise. He says, this land that you're on will be yours to inherit, an inheritance for your children, and that through your offspring, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You remember those promises? That's important promises for us to know and to remember. Because as we, as we study and we read through the book of Genesis we start to realize that that's the focus of the book, that, that it's about God fulfilling these promises and bringing about these things that he said he would do. And as we study, we see uh, Jake, uh, Abraham does have a son named Ishmael, and then he has a son named Isaac, and it's through Isaac the promise is going to come. But Isaac has a wife, Rebecca, and they're barren for 20 years. <laughs> and then they finally have twins, Jacob and Esau. And... You know, Esau's a mess, and Isaac's not that great of a father. And then Jacob is, is the one through whom the line's going to go. But eventually we get to Israel, Jacob changing his name to Israel. And he has 12 sons, and they go off to Egypt, and they're taken into captivity captivity essentially in Egypt and they're redeemed and we've got Moses and Joshua comes into the land and, and they're able as this huge nation to take the land for possession for themselves. And then eventually they get a King David and it seems like all these promises are being fulfilled that Abraham has said that there's a nation, that there's land and that there's a blessing to all the, the nations of the earth through Solomon. It seems like that's the case. I mean, the people have rest and everything seems good. But do you notice how it doesn't ever stay that way? Like it's just a temporary thing. It's not something that lasts forever. Uh, it's just this passing, fleeting thing where there's this nation and all these great things and then it all just goes away. It's, it's really a failure to, to give what God really intended. And whenever we get to the New Testament, one of the things that's revealed to us, especially in Hebrews 4, is that there's, there's an even greater rest remaining uh, for God's people. That's what uh, the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8, that Joshua didn't give them the rest that God had really intended. The security was part of the blessing promised to Abraham. And in fact, as we go into other books of the New Testament we see that uh, all those promises that are made to Abraham are actually being fulfilled in Jesus. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises that were being made to Abraham. Jesus is the seed or the offspring of Abraham that brings about the ultimate blessing for all the nations of the earth. That he will remove the curse. He will crush the head of Satan and allow for the people to once again be, find favor with God and be blessed. That, that blessing comes through Jesus. Jesus is the one who creates a nation, a group of people who walk by faith like Abraham does. And they are his offspring. They're Jews, they're Gentiles, they're Scythian, they're slaves, they're, they're free, they're, they're men, they're women, and everybody can be children of Abraham. And this nation is created that glorifies God. God had intended to fulfill these three promises made to Abraham in a much grander way. And he also... Uh, intends to give the land promise in a much grander way. And Abraham himself, uh, Hebrews 11 says, was looking to this. He, he believed that there was a city that God had prepared for him that has foundation that's not made with hands, but that's made by the living God. So these promises, as, as Matthew states, Jesus is the son of Abraham. These promises are the promises that Jesus is bringing about to fulfillment that were made to Abraham and that we now get to partake of. And that's what he's referring to as he brings up Abraham in this very first verse. He's thinking about promises being made. And we see as he continues, he talks about David. The next, the next section, he starts to mention David. And David is a main figure in the Old Testament. Why? Well, David was made great promises. David was made great promises. He was a descendant of Abraham, and, and he loved the Lord. He, he, he had a heart that sought after God's heart. He wanted to do what God wanted him to do, and he was a great faithful man for most of his life. Obviously, he made mistakes, uh, and we see that, but he loved the Lord. And he's sitting there in his nice house, and he starts thinking, I really want to build a temple for the Lord. And so he asked the prophet, and the prophet Nathan says, yeah, go ahead, build a temple for the Lord. And God comes back and says, you will not build me a temple. <laughs> and we're just like, wait a second, why, why is God against David building a temple? David's the guy. David's the anointed one. He's the one who, who seems to be fulfilling the seed promise and blessing everybody, and everything seems to be going good. But God tells David, I never asked you to build me a temple. I never asked for anything more than a tabernacle. The tabernacle was this pattern that was made of the spiritual realities in heaven. He says, I never asked you to build me a temple. But he sees the heart of David, and he, he understands how David loves him, and he comes back and he says, you know, I want to bless you with something. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 12 through 16, if you want to turn there, we're going to look at some Old Testament passages. I didn't, I didn't go to Genesis just because of time, but I want to look at a couple of passages uh, this morning. I don't usually like to make you skip around, but when the, when the writer is using Old Testament references, I think it's valuable to go and, and look at those sometimes and understand what was intended. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, you have this interaction between David and the prophet and God, and God comes back and God says this to David in verse 12, beginning of 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, 
and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all the vision, Nathan spoke to David. You see, this is a promise that's being made to David that... that because David has had this zeal for the Lord and love for the Lord, that God has determined in himself to establish the house of David and to make it last forever. And, and you see that through his son, that the house was going to be built. The temple was actually going to be built. Well, we notice as we study that Solomon is the son who, who comes after David, who is going to build the temple. He is the one who the, the throne will be established with, right? And he builds this grand temple for the people to worship, and there's great peace in the land, and everything seems to be going great. They're wealthier than they ever became any other time in the history of Israel. But we see that Solomon fails. He fails. He marries foreign women, and he starts pursuing idolatry. And because of that, God says, I'm going to rip the kingdom in two. And, and your son's going to get uh, Judah and Jeroboam's going to get the other tribes. So we see that the promise that God makes here is just, it, it fails miserably at the hands of Solomon. Solomon's not able to establish the throne of David forever over all of Israel and over all the earth. He's not able to create that great expansion to bless all the nations of the earth, really, as God intended it to be. His descendants also were supposed to rule forever, and they didn't. He has kings come after him, and they were good kings, and they were bad kings, but eventually it runs out, and there's no kingship. There's no royal su succession of the line of David. And we're just left wondering, well, God had planned to establish his throne forever. Will he do it or not? And, and the picture, the answer seems to be no. But then Matthew comes onto the scene and, and Matthew and says, this one, Jesus, he is the anointed one. He is the son of David that God had in mind. He is the one who will rule forever. These words in 2 Samuel, I will raise up your offspring after you and, and he shall build a house for my name. Verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Verse 16, uh, your throne shall be established forever. That picture of a, an eternal king that was promised to Solomon is being fulfilled in David. This great promise is coming true in David. But then you go back to Matthew and you notice how it transitions from Abraham to David to the deportation uh, to Babylon. Well, why is it doing that? What is that about? Well, go, go back up, look at verse 1, and notice how it kind of goes backwards. It, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So you, we have Abraham, the son of Abraham, we have the son of David, and then it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Well, think about that for a second. Is Christ Jesus' last name? No. <laughs> so many times we kind of just say Jesus Christ, and we kind of picture that as his last name, but what does Christ say about Jesus? The Messiah, the anointed one. 
There's a picture throughout the, the time of the prophets, especially, where there's a foretelling of one who will come, who will be the Christ. He will be the Messiah. He will be the anointed one. He will be the branch from the shoot of Jesse who will save God's people, who will set the captives free, who will help them to get out of the muck and the mire that they find themselves in. These promises are made over and over again in Scripture. And we don't have enough time to go to all of them, but I want to look at some of them. We'll just kind of go through some of the major prophets. Go back to Isaiah. So you've got Ecclesiastes, you've got Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. One of the major prophets takes up a lot of the book, uh, of the Bible. Isaiah chapter 9. Look at some of these prophecies that are made during the time. This is before the deportation of Babylon and Isaiah, but... During this time period, there, there begins to be prophecies. It's apparent that Solomon's not going to fulfill the promises that were made to David. Notice what God starts to tell his people. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 beginning, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see, the picture here is of God establishing a, 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 a child who will raise up and become this great Messiah, this great King on the throne of David. And notice what he's called. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I mean, the picture is that he is God ruling on the throne of David. And that's the picture of, of who this person is going to be. You see a picture of someone greater and grander than David. The Messiah that's being pictured. Skip over to chapter 11. Isaiah 11. Verse 1. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Jesse is the son of David. Okay, And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. You get the picture here of God establishing someone, putting his spirit in him, giving him all the wisdom and understanding to make the decisions to be the just king that everyone needs and everyone wants. And that picture is what we're finding fulfilled in the New Testament. The Messiah is coming. And then you skip over to Jeremiah. So the next major prophet over, Jeremiah 23. Verse 5, Jeremiah is writing, and it's during the time when the captivity is about to take place. The deportation to Babylon is about to happen, okay? And here we have Jeremiah speaking to those who are about to be taken into captivity, and notice what he's, he's talking about here. Verse 5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, 
and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. Notice again, calling him a name. The Lord is our righteousness. You see a picture of forgiveness being pointed out here. Righteousness, being made righteous through this one who is coming, who is going to be on the throne of David once again. All right, skip ahead now to Ezekiel. So you got Lamentations and then you got Ezekiel. Go to Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel is actually a captive in Babylon. <laughs> He's a prophet who is speaking from captivity in Babylon. And, and Ezekiel is, has warned the people and they've rebelled again and again. And, and now it, Jerusalem's fallen, it turns out, back in chapter 32. And now he starts giving all these promises to the people. Even though they've lost everything, even though the, their nation is gone, their kingdom is gone, the king is gone. Listen to what he says to them in verse 24 of Ezekiel 37. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and David my servant shall be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them, and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. We could go to a number of other texts throughout the Old Testament and the prophets, as they have been deported to Babylon and as they have come out of Babylon, God continually, over and over again in these prophets, points to a David, points to a Messiah figure who is going to come in and save the people and give them the promised blessings that were made to Abraham, that were made to David, that he's going to rule and he's going to be able to take care of the people and provide them with every blessing that they need in their life. Well... Even in Daniel, we have that. Daniel gives this crazy picture. In Daniel chapter 7, I think I said Ezekiel was the last one. We'll look at this one as well. Uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, the next major prophet over. He's got this vision of all these beasts and everything, and then he says in verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Notice, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see all these, this picture of a king that's going to come, establish his throne, establish his kingdom. He's going to rule forever on the throne of David. And guess what? There's not one person in all of history that fulfilled that promise like Jesus did, or, or, or as Jesus did. 
before 70 AD when Jerusalem is destroyed and all those records are gone. There is no understanding of who is of the descendancy of David anymore because it's gone. But Jesus came right beforehand and Matthew is pointing to him and he's saying about him, He is the son of Abraham. He is the son of David. He is the Messiah. We see that these captives are looking for that. Imagine yourself in the first century, suffering under Roman oppression, desiring for someone to come and to free you. And now Matthew says, here is Jesus, the one you've been waiting for all along. These Jews would have known these passages like the back of their hand. They would have known the text that pointed to the promises that were made to them as a people of Israel, the promises that were made to them that God would establish them once again and that He would bless them. But as Matthew goes through this book, one thing he's going to reveal to them is that the physical captivity that they're in is nothing compared to the spiritual captivity that they've been in since the beginning of time. And that's what Jesus ultimately came to free them of. See, Matthew's just setting them up in this text. Helping them to see and get excited about the fact that the promises that were made in the Old Testament are finding their fulfillment in Jesus. But one thing he's going to reveal to them throughout the course of this book is that ultimately Jesus came to set us free from the captivity we're under because of sin. The captivity that we're under because Satan rules over us. And, and sin and death rules over us. And there will come a day when Jesus will come and He will conquer everything and He will, he will ascend and, and we will ascend with Him and we will live with Him forever and all eternity and enjoy all the blessings that He's promised. But as of right now, the thing Matthew wants his writers to understand is that Jesus has come. He is the King. He is the Messiah. The fulfiller of all the promises that were made in the Old Testament. That they might listen a little bit more. Until he gets to the point where he says what Jesus said. Come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest for your souls. That's what Jesus came to do. And that's the picture that Matthew is going to set up for us in this book. Pretty amazing. Uh, the God that we serve as we understand all that he's done in scripture to reveal to us who his Messiah would be and what he has come to do. So the point of all this is that the time of the promises are ending. The Old Testament, done. They're now being fulfilled. And Matthew starts us off with a glorious image of that. That now God is fulfilling the things that He said He would, he would come and fulfill in the Old Testament. This makes Jesus the center of everything. Throughout all the Old Testament, He is, he is the focal point that we're going toward. Throughout the Old Testament, as we're studying, we're learning the story about how God brought about His Son. All those genealogies that we hate in the Old Testament, that we can't stand to read through, guess what? They're leading to something. They're leading us to Jesus. That's why they're there. And that's why Matthew starts with this genealogy. Because from before the foundation of the earth, God had a plan to redeem mankind and to bring them back into his family once again through the sacrifice of his son and to give them every spiritual blessing. 
And that's what the New Testament's revealing to us as we study it. So really, this is just kind of a big picture understanding of what is the Old Testament? What is the New Testament? The Old Testament is the promises being made. The New Testament is understanding how Jesus fulfilled all of these promises for us. And that brings us to the second point of this genealogy. Notice in the meat of the text, as we look at all these names, there's a few names in here that stand out to us. I want us to think for just a second about what names were being used and why this is important in understanding the salvation idea uh, that, that Matthew has given us. First of all, notice verse 3. It says, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Okay, so Jesus comes through this line that he starts with Judah and Tamar. Do you remember anything about Judah and Tamar? If you know your Old Testament, you know that is not a pretty picture. If you're reading through Genesis, you read that and you're like, oh, that's, why is that there? What's the point of that? You know, that's just ugly. I mean, Judah um, has three sons. He gives his son to, one, to a woman, to, to Tamar, to be married. And they don't have any children. His son dies. He gives him to the second son. He refuses to try to have children. He dies. And then Judah doesn't give Tamar to his third son. And Tamar is supposed to have him, but doesn't. Supposed to have children through him. So she dresses like a prostitute, deceives Judah, and has children through Judah. What is that? What a horrible picture. You know, what sinfulness, what evil we see in these people. And then there's redemption. As Judah is forgiven by Joseph, as Judah is brought back, there's a picture that God is able to bring some good out of something awful. That through Judah and Tamar, Eventually, we would get to the son of Abraham, son of David, the Messiah. You keep going, you get Rahab. Rahab is a Moabite. The Moabites were not supposed to be added to, Jerusalem, to Judah, to Israel, uh, up to the 10th generation, but yet she's added. And it's a, weird, it's a weird little story that tells us about... Oh, that's Ruth. Rahab is somebody... I'm sorry. Uh, Rahab is this story about a Canaanite woman who the spies come into Jericho and they find... Uh, they, they're, they're being caught, and Rahab saves them. And she's a Canaanite who's a prostitute. Ruth is a Moabite. Uh, so you've got these pictures, and then you've got uh, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Doesn't even mention her name, Bathsheba. Okay? And even included in the list, Manasseh. God brings about the Messiah, the son of David, the one who's going to fulfill all these things, through these horrible people. Why is all this mentioned? Well, think for a second about the Jews and their perception of things. As we go through this, this is going to be revealed to us in the book of Matthew, that the Jews did not care for those who were sinners, and they thought, there's no hope for them, let's get them out of here. And here at the very beginning of Matthew's gospel, Matthew, a tax collector, brings up these horrible sinners and says, God is able to restore and to bring about his Messiah through them. Not through good people, not through the best of the best, but through them. What's the message for us? Our God can restore, can rebuild, can renew the worst of us. And that's what he's chosen to do. And he can bring about ultimately his plan of salvation and redemption 
no matter how awful or, or, or bad we've become, He's able to bring about salvation and grace and mercy through the, the life and through the death of His Son. That tells us something about the God we serve, and that tells us something about who we are. We need to think differently about who we are and understand that everyone on this list, David included, was, was, was sinful, was, was horrible, did, did bad things in his life, and was unworthy of this great honor to be blessed as he was by the God he served. None of us here are worthy of the great blessing that God has provided us through this Son that He has given us. And next time we're going to be studying more about His birth and understanding more about how He fulfilled the Old Testament. And I've, I've already studied to prepare for that, and I'm really looking forward to that study together with you as we dive into some of those Old Testament texts. I hope that you can make it back with us to, to study that. Is there anybody here this morning who recognizes their state and their status with God? Uh, understanding that you're a sinner, understanding that you have fallen short, that you are unworthy of the God who is able to work from the very beginning of time to make all these promises and to fulfill them by, by coming down to earth Himself and dying on a cross for our forgiveness. If you understand all of that and you have not submitted your life to Him, you need to understand He is the King, He is the Righteous One, and He is our righteousness. If we're willing to submit to Him, His blood will wash away and cover all of our sin, sins and make us pure and holy children of God and bless us with every spiritual blessing. If you have not taken part in that wonderful blessing and you know you need to do that, please make that change. Please come forward as we stand and as we sing.